Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Are are space heaters still legal? Probably not. Sheila, we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) It is an electric space heater, right? Tell me that. It's a coal-burning space heater. (laughs) It's a a coal-burning space heater. (laughs) Perfect. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and the Wall Street Journal. This week, how synthetic biology can drive a new wave of ingredients, materials, and molecules in beauty and fashion. We're talking with Dr. Sunil Chandran, the chief science officer and head of research and development at Amaris, about their entry into the beauty industry with biotech ingredients that offer a sustainable alternative to cosmetic products. And as always, we'll take a look at the news driving fashion's transition, or not, to a sustainable future. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? Going great, Christina. How are you? I'm good. You look, it must be cold there because you're dressed all toasty. You should be out here with me in LA. I should. And the CEO of Thrilling, Shilla Kim Parker, joins us from South Salem, New York. Hi there. Okay, let's welcome Dr. Chandran. Great to have you, Sunil. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, really got to. You um, You have been at Amaris from nearly the beginning, from its initial focus on an anti-malaria drug, I believe you told me. I, I, I don't see that in a lot of the company bios, but I'm pretty sure I remember last time we spoke, you mentioned that it started out with an anti-malarial drug, then moved on to diesel fuels through its current focus on beauty products. We're delighted to have you on to help us understand the role that biotech will play in this space. We have lots of questions for you, but I think it would help if we start with an example. When you used with me, you mentioned that patchouli oil traditionally comes from a plant, but you can produce the exact same chemical from fermented sugarcane somehow. That's a little mind-blowing to me. I don't have a great science background. Can you just walk us through how that works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, patchouli is made by the clarisage plant. Now, how does the plant make patchouli? For that matter, how do plants or, or cells, any kind of cells, make any kind of chemical, right? So the plant that makes patchouli, it has a set of instructions inside its own code, right? So if you think of a plant is executing a software program all the time to make the chemicals it needs for survival, right? And that software program is really run by some code inside the plant, and that code is a genetic code. And so what you have to do now is if you see yeast, which traditionally is used to make bread or make beer or make wine, yeast has a set of its own code 
right? That it uses for its own survival. Now, it may not have the code to make patchouli, but you know the code to make patchouli from the plant. So how do you then transfer that genetic code from the plant, put it into yeast, and then execute that same program inside yeast, right? And so that is what genetic engineering really is. You're taking part of the genetic code responsible for making a certain chemical in the plant and transporting that same code into something benign like yeast. And then you can grow yeast in these massive fermentation tanks, just like you would you know, do it for making beer. And the yeast will execute that code and start making patchouli that you need for the fragrance industry. Now, uh, you know, there are, it, it, there are certain things you will have to, some, certain criteria you de- do need to meet, right? Because the fragrance is due to a certain mixture of patchouli and, you know, other ingredients that is made from the plant. And you need to then copy the same specification or criteria when you make it through fermentation because, again, the consumer is used to a certain blend, a certain fragrance that they are used to. From, and you have to make sure you match it in the fermentation. So that's how we do it. We understand how the plant makes it and then try to recapitulate that entire process in a yeast cell. And you do that for patchouli. Well, let's go back and talk a little bit about Amaris and how you've used that technology because you've had quite a journey. This 2003, I think you're you're researching animal aerial drugs. Bill Gates says, who was very interested in developing an anti-malaria vaccine at the time, gives you $40 million. You then pivot to making diesel fuel, and then you pivot to making beauty ingredients. Can you walk us through that that path? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, if you think of the technology platform that we have developed at Amherst, right, what it enables us to do is make any chemical that is made in nature, right? Uh, and, and so the antimalarial drug is artemisinin. Artemisinin is a natural drug made by the Artemisia annua plant. Now, due to a variety of reasons, you know, in the early 2000s, there were a lot of fluctuations in the cost and the supply of artemisinin, uh, which really affected mostly people in Africa. Now, again, going back to my original hypothesis that if it can be made in a plant, you can figure out how the plant makes it, copy it over into yeast. And so in order to stabilize the supply and stabilize the cost, uh, you know, because it it is a valuable drug, Uh, it was actually the only drug to which Plasmodium has not developed resistance against. And so what we decided to do is... The only drug that what hasn't? Plasmodium, the parasite that causes malaria. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So what we decided to do at that time, and, and this is the work that started at uh, University of California, Berkeley, uh, where you know uh, Professor Jay Kiesling and four of his uh, postdocs actually came up with the technology, and they showed that it can be done. Proof of concept, you know, small micro drop in the lab, and that is when the Gates Foundation came in and said, you know what, this is uh, groundbreaking technology. Why don't we fund it? You know, start a commercial entity called Amorous which is then responsible for taking that proof of concept and actually coming up, coming up with a commercial scale solution for it. And so that's exactly what we did. We developed a fermentation process to make artemisinic acid. And then the artemisinic acid can be converted into artemisinin uh, through a very simple chemical process. Now, what's the difference, right? The difference is it takes about 13 months to grow Artemisia annua, the crop, to make enough artemisinin for the malaria market. Whereas for us, the fermentation lasts maybe two weeks, and maybe a couple more weeks to the chemistry. So really, in a month, 
you can actually produce the optimism needed. So you can respond very quickly to, you know, a pandemic or, or, or a situation where you need to produce a lot of optimism all, of, all, of, all at once. Now, that project was a nonprofit project for us. So we, uh, under the terms of the Gates funding, we were going to provide it at cost to a pharma company to produce it. And the pharma company would produce it, with, you know, make sure they cover their costs to countries, developed, uh, developing countries, emerging uh, markets. Now, as a company, we still had to figure out how to then survive as a company. You can't survive on a nonprofit project. And back in 2005, 2006, you know, the uh, petroleum industry was going through, uh, you know, some changes, right? So oil was starting to become really expensive. And what we realized is you can actually make certain hydrocarbons through fermentation using the same process I described, where you genetically engineer the yeast, they consume sugar, and they convert that sugar into a hydrocarbon. And so that is how we went to diesel. We started making uh, a C15 hydrocarbon. Well, guess what? Diesel is a mixture of anywhere from C12 to C16 hydrocarbons. And so we were making a C15 hydrocarbon called farnesine. You convert farnesine into farnesane, a very simple chemical step. And that farnesane can be pumped 100% into a diesel engine without any blending. And that engine will run fine without knowing any difference. So why aren't you still doing that? Right. So why aren't we still doing that? Because, you know, when we started, oil was, what, 120 bucks a barrel, 130 bucks a barrel. And by the time, you know, we were really starting to produce farnesine and farnesane, oil prices started crashing 2010, 2011. And so it was no longer economical for us to start to be producing the diesel at that time. Uh, nothing wrong with the performance. It worked great. We actually got EPA certification as well to use it in diesel engine. Now, what happened at that time is we realized that we were producing this class of chemicals. So artemisinin, farnesine, they belong to a class of chemicals known as, known as terpenes. Now, we use terpenes all the time. Patchouli is a terpene. And so what we realized is the technology platform we had developed allowed us to access a huge range of terpenes that are made by nature. And there are more than 50,000 terpenes known that, that are produced in nature. Can I, can I just ask a quick question about yeast? Sure. I'm not a scientist, shocker, so forgive me for my clumsy explanation of this. But I'm thinking, is the reason you're using yeast is its ability to reproduce itself or, or produce things? Is that it's kind of like a mode, yeah, a mechanism of production? Yeah, you can, you, I mean, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The way to think about it is what you said is right. Any microbe is self-replicating, right? You feed sugar to a microbe, a microbe will consume the sugar and reproduce. So it's a self-replicating living factory, right? So think of yeast as a bag of enzymes and those ba that bag of enzymes is converting the sugar and then spitting out the product, right? So it's a living factory and it keeps replicating itself. So it's self-sustaining from that standpoint. Can you also kind of explain why is it that we would want to replace plant-based mechanisms to produce these chemicals. You talked about speed as one advantage, but can you kind of give a broader context for what, for why we would want to do that um, in the first place? What's the benefit to people and planet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, a great question. A few reasons. One, a lot of times the plant that you're extracting it from is being cultivated from a forest and it's an endangered plant. So, you know, you don't want to drive it to extinction. And guess what? You have an alternative where you're producing it by fermentation. 
Okay, that's one. What are some examples of that? Sandalwood oil, for example. So sandalwood oil, you know, again, you know, it it was extracted from, yeah, it's extracted from the sandalwood tree in India. It's banned. Um, It was nearly driven to extinction. Uh, But we can produce sandalwood oil today in fermentation. Uh, so, you know, so that's a great example of uh, a chemical used to be produced by plant, currently made by fermentation. The other arguments to make these chemicals by fermentation is the uh, usage of land. So what we do is we grow sugar cane or, or we buy our sugar from sugarcane growers. Sugarcane is a very efficient crop. And a lot of times, you know, the difference is Actually, I'll give you an example. Bisabolol. Bisabolol is extracted from the candea tree. We produce bisabolol today by fermentation using 230 times less land than bisabolol from the candea tree. So from land usage, water usage, it's a huge advantage to the planet uh, by making these chemicals in fermentation. Now, there's a plant side of it. There's also the animal side of it, right? Because there are chemicals extracted or I mean, harvested by killing animals. So, for example, squalene and squalane, extracted from the livers of deep sea sharks. You can make that same chemical using fermentation. And guess what? Uh, You can replace all those sharks, 3 million, 4 million sharks, by making squalene and squalane by growing sugarcane on less than one square kilometer of land. By the way, tell us what squalene is. Most people don't know how much squalene they rub on their body. What is it? Yeah, so so squalene. So let's actually let's start with squalene. Uh, <laughs> squalene is a chemical made by our body. So when a baby is born, when humans are born, we are you know we are covered by this vernix layer, right? That vernix layer is actually predominantly squalene. Uh, it's the reason why baby skins are so smooth because squalene is a natural emollient moisturizer. The cosmetics companies have known about squalene for a long time. Uh, now, we lose the ability to make squalene as we get older, right? And so that's why we need moisturizers as we grow older. But deep-sea shark livers contain a huge amount of squalene. And so for the longest time, you know, humans, we used to kill sharks for all that squalene. Now, squalene by itself, if you leave it out long enough, it gets oxidized, goes rancid. And so what you do is you convert it into a stable form called squalane, which is chemically very similar. So your body doesn't know the difference, but it's a lot more stable. Now, squalane is actually quite widely used in a lot of cosmetics, a lot of moisturizers. If you use sunscreen, chances are it contains squalane in it. Any kind of moisturizer contains squalane in it. From sharks still? Used to be from sharks. So yeah, so used to be from sharks. And so about a few years back, the... European Union banned the harvesting of squalene for cosmetic use from sharks. And so, of course, the companies had to pivot. And the only other source at that time was to get it from the olive oil industry. And so, leftover olives after the olive oil extraction contains a small amount of squalene. The problem is one of purity, right? So, it costs a lot more to get that same purity of squalene from olives as you did from shark liver. And that's when we came along. What we realized is we were making farnesine. Remember, back to the diesel story where we were mm-hmm. making farnesine. Farnesine has 15 carbons. Squalene has, or squalane, has 30 carbons. Guess what? You can take two farnesine molecules, link them end to end, and you get 
a squalane molecule. So that is how we currently make squalane. We actually make farnesine by fermentation and chemically convert into squalane, which is identical in all respects with shark liver-derived squalane. And guess what? Purity is the same, performance is the same, cost is the same, if not better. Does that mean that a biologist or a chemist could not tell the difference between the two molecules if they looked at them? No way to tell the difference. That is correct, yeah. And that's an important part, right? Because at the end of the day, yes, it's a sustainable process, right? But how do you drive consumer adoption, right? The way you drive consumer adoption is, yes, it's sustainable. But guess what? You're not going to pay more for it. And guess what? You'll get the same or better performance by using our product, right? And so that for the consumer they don't have to make any compromise in their lifestyle. So it's what we like to call a no-compromise solution, right? So it has to hit all three factors. So that kind of brings us up to, to date. Uh, when I was looking at um, your company webpage, I realized I've heard of Biosance. I've, I've heard of that company. It's a very highly regarded skincare product. And in fact, you are producing Biosance. Your, your company is producing that line of products, right? Is that correct? So, so you've been, you've started incorporating your own squalane into uh, consumer products that you're selling, and and you have a number of lines, including Jonathan Van Ness's latest hair care line. I've seen you've made a line for Francisco Costa. Um, you've got Gen Z lines. You've got you've got um, products that you can take orally for peri mono, mo, menopause and menopause. I mean that you you have sugar uh, substitute products. There's all sorts of products that you're now selling, and you're also selling into large markets like L'Oreal, Shiseido, Natura, Estee Lauder. How did you make this decision to create your own line of products and now multiple lines of products and, and partner with celebrities and do all that. I'd love to hear that story. Absolutely. No, that's a great question. So, you know, back in the early days, you know, Amorous, we were a small company and we knew that to drive market adoption, we had to work with sector leaders, right? So, you know, the, like you said, L'Oreal's of the world or the Fermanicius of the world. So these are big companies that were sector leaders, and they used to provide most of, the, most of these ingredients to their customers. And so what we would do is work with these huge companies, produce the ingredient, and sell them the ingredient, and they would then sell it into the final marketplace. That still remains a very big part of our business. So that's the you know, uh, business, B2B, the business-to-business -business, uh, part of, uh, of Amorous. During that time, we also started realizing that some of the brands that were using some of the ingredients we were producing it, they weren't necessarily using it to the best of the ingredients' ability. So squalane is a great example. You know, if you look at, in those days, we used to see some of the squalane branded products that contained squalane. They were produced, maybe, they maybe had 5 10% of that squalane in there. Right? And it's not that effective. And so that's how we came up with the idea of making Biosans. So we were still selling squalane through the ingredient channels, but we started to create our own brand called Biosans. And really the goal was sell 100% squalane as a product to the consumer. Is that what it is? 100%? Yeah, it is. It's like rubbing my baby all over my face? <laughs> oh, yeah. Baby. Yeah, you should, you should totally buy it. I know, I'm, it's, now it's, I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm sold. You see this glowing skin? You see this glowing skin? <laughs> yes. It's not an accident, right? Too bad this is a podcast. Old, He's really He's 90 really years old. 90. Yeah. 
the the point is that you know we are able to because we control we do the manufacturing we control the supply chain we are able to actually you know really drive these these ingredients to levels not seen before through our own brands um the other thing is that you know when you sell it through your own brand you start getting consumer feedback very easily very quickly and so you can then act on the consumer feedback and come up with a different skew a different formulation and so now if you go to our bioscience website you can see that there are many different products all you know based on consumer feedback or the market need and we can act on it very quickly because it's our own brand and it's using our own ingredient. Does it serve as kind of a pitch deck to sell into other brands as well? If you can prove out this model among your own like suite of brands, you can say, "Hey, you should be doing this because this is what our customers are saying." Yeah, and and absolutely, you know, and we are a big believer that, you know, the way you drive success in this industry is you make sure everyone has access to these ingredients. And so that's why for us it's not just about using it only for our brands. we'll make sure that other brands who would like to use these ingredients they also have access to it because again you want to drive the consumer adoption and really it's good for the planet to be using these chemicals the way we are producing it sustainable and there's no compromise there i'm curious about perception on that and it just it it, it um surprised me when i read that you guys are behind um costa brazil i have I don't know if you can see that. This is a Costa Brazil. It's one of the first. It's the uh, body cream. And so Francisco Costa was the creative director of Calvin Klein for a long long time and when he left there, he launched this brand. He actually sent this to me. It's a few years old and it's still good as not gone bad. And I'm remember the initial marketing for it anyway as being natural ingredients from Brazil cuz Francisco's from Brazil. But I mean, is this is your squalene in this? Is this I have to look at that exact product because I have to see what what else is in there. I mean what you know the Costa Brazil what they typically do is they work with the local villages and make sure the local villages are part of that supply chain, right? So they want to make sure they they are uh, providing valuable employment to the to the villages while at the same time not you know completely destroying the rainforest. So there's a way to do it smartly and that's what Costa Brazil does right they do do locally sourced ingredients but they work with the locals in doing that um so they're not using your fermentation process but so that we will they will be using our fermentation based products so that's the transition for all the brands every time we acquire a brand they are using ingredients that we can make by fermentation right oh, and so okay. that's why when we acquire them we say okay now we understand the ingredients you're making let's figure out if there are ingredients now that we can make by fermentation and then supplement your own brand right so again it's about the entire ecosystem that you want to develop right because you would like to work with the local populations while at the same time enhancing the products using chemicals made through sustainable fermentation derived way this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full '90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. 
So I'd really love to dig into more of the sugarcane production. But before that, I'd love to hear more about the journey of how you how the company arrived at that solution. So when we hear about other uh, bioengineered ingredients um, for the purposes of sustainability, I've heard things like lactic acid or algae. Are those competitive? Are they completely different? How, how do we think about those? And how did, how did your company... Do, decide on this particular path. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's let's take a step back, you know. So biotech has been around for 50 years, right? I mean, actually, if you think about it, you know, the way penicillin used to be made, penicillin, when it was discovered, you know, it's made by a bacteria. And then they, fig- uh, and then they figured out how to, um, actually not by bacteria, but by filamentous fungus. But they used to make penicillin by fermentation. But biotech has been around for a long time because a lot of the pharmaceutical ingredients we're used to using were made by fermentation, right? Insulin, for example, that's made by fermentation using a bacteria. Now, you talked about lactic acid, you talked about algae. These are all different, like lactic acid is a chemical that is made by fermentation. Algae is another microbe that, you can, that, you know, that similar to yeast, but it's another way of, another host for making these chemicals. Um, why did we choose this particular sector? The beauty industry uses a huge number of chemicals that are extracted from plants or produced through petroleum feedstocks or extracted from animals. It's, an, it's a market that is ripe for innovation. And it's a market that is trying to change, right? These, these companies, you know, they have their own ESG goals. They also realize that consumers do want these products, but made in, in a sustainable manner. So this is a and and they were and and to give credit where it's due, a lot of these cosmetic companies were just hungry for actually changing how they source ingredients, right? So they were also behind it, and so that is why we chose this sector. It's a pretty large sector, and it's ripe for innovation. It's ripe for change. And you know, our what we have realized is our hypothesis was right because of success we've had in driving our ingredients in this market. I once. I spent some time with the ingredients acquirer for Guerlain, the the um, it's an LVMH owned um, brand. We all know the fragrances, and one of their big con- that person's big concern. I was appalled at the tr- travel involved in looking for certain types of flowers that are grown only on the west side of the Himalayas or whatever. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's extraordinary. But they were really concerned about climate change because where they were able to source these products was shifting, and they're having to find, you know replications in other parts of the world. I mean, how many of these, I mean, it's probably more than thousands. It's, it may be millions of ingredients, I don't know, used by these cosmetic companies. How many can you reproduce in this manner? I mean, I haven't really looked at every chemical that's used in the cosmetics industry, right? But I would wager that if they are sourcing it from a natural source, my bet is we can make it by fermentation. That's one. The other one is, even if it's petroleum-derived, quite a few times we can actually produce a chemical by fermentation that will shorten that chemical route by more than 90%. So again, just because it, it might have 10 chemical steps today. We might produce an ingredient that takes out eight of those steps. Right? So again, it's a win-win for, for, for the planet. Right? So again, I haven't looked at all the chemicals, but I would wager that a significant number of them will eventually be made by fermentation. Where does cost come into that? Aha, now that's an important one, right? So that, I think that is the, as the technology, so again, let's go back to my, what I had said about the pharmaceutical industry 
you know, has used biotech for a long time for, for producing ingredients. Well, the pharmaceutical sector has a very different cost structure, right? They can, uh, you know, people are going to spend for healthcare reasons. Now, the difference is, as you're trying to sell chemicals day to, that, that consumers use on a day-to-day -day basis, you have to start thinking of the cost because no one is going to pay $10,000 for a tube of chemical just because it's you know, sustainably produced. And so what has happened in the last 10, 15 years is the technology has evolved quite rapidly to the point where a lot of these chemicals that used to be cheap, you can produce them as cheaply through our own technology platform today. And as the technology continues to evolve and improve over the next few years, what we start realizing is a lot of these commoditized chemicals start becoming within, start coming within reach of our platform, right? So it's a question of, I think cost is a, it's an, it's a very important question and it's starting to become, uh, you know, uh, it's starting to come within reach, if not already, because we are producing a lot of chemicals today where, you know, it's, it's cost competitive against other sources. I was going to ask about um, using Brazilian sugar cane as an input if you're at all worried about Brazil and land water use, and if you're looking to other regions at all. Well, before you start, I, I just, I was kind of amazed, and, and maybe as part of your response, if you could give uh, the scale and scope of, of sugarcane production today, because I'm not sure most people understand how, how large it is and, and some of the harmful byproducts of that current production. And then what's what, the difference in your approach? Yeah, so sugarcane is um, one of the largest crops grown in the world, right? Brazil, India, place in Southeast Asia, they are huge in terms of sugarcane manufacturing. How big? Well, there was a time when Brazil, using sugarcane-derived ethanol, was able to displace 50% of its gasoline use. Uh, you know, so, and then without affecting food production, right? Again, you have to make sure that, you know, the sugar you produce doesn't impact, you know, you have to make sure the food industry gets enough of it and making sure that you can make enough ethanol to, to, uh, for uh, automo automotive use. Now, the way Amaris handles this is we work with an organization called Bon Sucro. So our, we only use sugarcane that's Bon Sucro certified. What is Bon Sucro certification? It's an organization that actually monitors the ethical use or ethical growth of sugarcane, both from a labor standpoint, ethical standpoint, and environmental standpoint. Okay, so, you know, little use of fertilizer, little use of pesticides, and making sure that the workers are appropriately compensated. That's one. The second point is that sugarcane is actually one of the most regener regenerative crops on the planet. Now, you can plant it over and over again without soil deterioration. Because the way you harvest it is you actually don't take off the entire crop. You take off some of it. You let the rest actually go back into the soil and it nourishes the soil that way, right? Now, you know, I talked about, you know, this use of squalane. Like, like I said, you know, one square kilometer of uh, sugarcane will actually produce enough squalane to avoid the killing of millions of sharks, right? So that's the, that's the trade-off. So... So it uses, sugarcane does use less land than conventional agricultural processes and less water as well. Uh, in terms of, you know, you know, I've heard this rumor that it causes deforestation. Actually, sugarcane is not grown anywhere near the rainforest. In fact, it needs land that is about, you know, on the, on the other side of Brazil. So in terms of the land that's used, it actually can be grown pretty much anywhere. Um, you know, it, it actually needs less water. And so that's why the rainforest is not the ideal place to grow it, actually. Uh, so in terms of a crop, 
it's actually one of the most sustainable sugar sugar uh, sources in the world, actually. Hmm, that's so interesting. So I was looking at World Wildlife Fund, and they have these stats about sugarcane production. They say uh, traditional production covers about 65 million acres, at least 25% of farmland by a dozen countries is used to grow it. Um, and currently through Bonsucro, which it sounds like World Wildlife Fund has a relationship to Bonsucro, and so they're kind of talking about the benefits of Bonsucro. Um, there's about two a little over 2 million acres of sugarcane certified through Bonsucro. Is is that scaled or or what do you need to get to scaled production? Yeah, um, so I think it, there's definitely, from a scale standpoint, this is not a bottleneck, right? Access to sugarcane is not a bottleneck in this sector, right? The question is, you know, getting the buy-in, identifying the next set of chemicals that you can make by sugarcane. My hypothesis is, you know, if the market is there, we can produce it and there's enough sugarcane sustainably produced to actually meet that demand, right? So the bottleneck is not access to sugarcane. It's demand. It's demand. The, you know, you, let me just add one more thing. You talked about the worldwide uh, WWF, uh, right? They actually just started working with Amaris because they, you know, they have bought into our story about this use of, you know, how we produce squalane and displacement of sharks, for that example. So, you know, the world, you know, we are a big fan of what they do, and we are glad to be partnering them as well in this sector. Um, I want to say, I noticed we, we chatted before we started recording that you have this big, empty whiteboard <laughs> behind you. I'm going to imagine that it's usually full of scribbles and that you erased it for, our <laughs> for us. Um, and I know you can't talk too much uh, about what you have in the pipeline. But I'm curious, can you give us some hints about what's coming and how it could impact the globe? Yeah. I mean, you know, so I can't talk about specific uh, ingredients themselves, but what I will say is this. So we have certain ingredients that will end up going into our menopause line, right? So again, you know, menopausal products are a sector that has just been ignored for a while, right? And I, we believe that there are ingredients that we can make by fermentation that will make a huge impact over there. Would that be a pharmaceutical or something that's sold on store shelves? Store, sold on store shelves through our, uh, through our Stripes brand, actually. And we also have the Menno Labs uh, brand there. So again, through, through shelves. Uh, the other big one that we are working on are ingredients that go into food. So not necessarily the food itself that someone is going to eat, but really, you know, there are certain flavors or certain ingredients that, you know, that go into manufacture of food, where again, we can make some of those ingredients by fermentation uh, cheaper than the alternative source, right? So again, what you can do then is, you know, you have a growing planet. The, you know, the growing planet is going to need more food to sustain. And one way to do that is to provide a source that doesn't use as much land use, for example. So, you know, for me, those are some of the areas that I'm very excited about. Um, so, and, you know, so stay tuned. I was just going to say, how how fast is that? T- like, wh- what's the what's going to be the soonest to market and what's going to take a little bit longer? Maybe the food? Oh, uh, actually, so it's a, uh, it's a great question. Like, we can dive a little deep into that. You know, one of the... F- one factor that goes into how quickly you can take product to market is the cost, right? So if it's an extremely cheap product, it takes us a little time to actually develop a technology where it's cheap enough. The second one is, of course, a regulatory framework, right? Um, 
at Amherst, we are believer, we are a strong believer in making sure that we follow the rules, make sure that we get all the regulatory approvals to make sure that what we are selling to the consumer is absolutely safe. Right? So we go through all the protocols. So the question then becomes, which sectors have more regulatory framework, uh, more uh, regulations that we need to meet, right? And again, we meet all of them, but that can sometimes result in a longer time to, uh, uh, time to market. Uh, so I think those are some of the two big factors. To address your question directly, you know, we've gone, we've commercialized, what, 15 ingredients to date, right, at commercial scale. Um, Back in the day, you know, when I first started in the sector, it would take anywhere from four to eight years to take a product to market easily, right? Today at Amorous, because of the platform we have developed, sometimes it's less than a year, right? So that's the difference. And I mean, on average, two years, three years in, in the market already. So that is how quickly uh, the process has accelerated. That's how quickly the, the technology has evolved. Uh, so yeah, so there's a technology standpoint, there's a cost, there's a regulatory framework. So it varies a little, but it's it's the fastest we've ever seen. At least I've been in this industry for more than 20 years and it's the fastest it's ever been today. Wow. This might be outside of your um, current focus within the company, but um, the beauty industry tends to get um, some heat about pla plastics involved in packaging and kind of excessive packaging. How how does Amaris thought about that, or, or or is that on your roadmap to tackle in the future? Yeah, so actually, you know, we we have our own brands, right? And we make sure that the packaging that goes into our brands is actually, uh, you know, uses as little plastic as possible. So we end up using recycled sugarcane waste actually to make the packaging for our own brands. Right. I think it's a very valid question. And I think this is something that the beauty industry is definitely looking to tackle, right? Reduce the amount of plastics or use plastics. So, for example, you know, you talked about what's the next big frontier in this in the space, right? Actually making plastics using biolog biologically derived material. That's a big one. Uh, and so, you know, so I think that there are different ways to tackle it. Today at Amaris, we try and reduce the amount of plastic and use more um, recycled paper goods, for example, for our packaging. This is this may be a completely stupid question, but I'm just curious as to whether you have any technologies that are able to somehow use carbon or pull carbon out of the processes. Yeah, I mean that that so that that is definitely something that the sector is looking at as a whole, right? Uh, now, I would argue that sugarcane does a fantastic job of absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere as a plant, right? Yeah, as yeah, but but I, I get what you're saying, right? I mean, there are uh, companies and and there are processes now where what we're trying to do is really just use CO2 directly from the atmosphere, you know, in some, you know, in some modified form, and then use that as a feedstock. So the carbon capture is definitely something that, as a whole, we are looking at uh, as a sector. Because, again, that can drive, uh, you know, a better pro process and is better for the planet as well, right? That might bring Bill Gates back to you, give you, give you some more money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Can you share anything about, you know, what is the grand ambition at the end of the day in, in 20, 30, 50 years? Is it that all, nearly every ingredient in a CPG company is is created using this biotech processes? What What's kind of the grand ambition? Yeah, the, uh, our mission is that, you know, one day every chemical will be produced our way, 
right? It doesn't matter what sector it is in. I mean, I know we are tackling the beauty sector right now, you know, but there are so many other industries that could benefit from our own technology platform. So, you know, so what we like to say is we are, like, we are trying to change the world one molecule at a time. Uh, and, and so one day, every chemical will be produced our way. The term clean beauty mm-hmm. in general, you know, it's it's not regulated by the FDA. The e, we know the EU bans over 1,300 chemicals. The U.S. like two and a half. Uh, I mean, I'm being like, it's not not far from that. So, and then you mentioned regulation actually kind of can inhibit innovation and speed to market. So what would it be better for a business like yours if that term were more regulated in the U.S.? And what does clean beauty mean to you? Yeah, I mean, that's, that. you know, you're talking, <laughs> so, you know, re- in my opinion, regulations don't necessarily inhibit innovation. It, it does, sometimes you actually innovate to figure out how do you actually meet those regulatory frameworks. Again, I'm of the opinion that regulations at the end of the day are meant to protect the consumer, you know, and let's be honest, I'm a consumer myself, so I'm going to trust that these regulatory agencies are doing their job. I want to work with them. Uh, you know, but what does clean beauty mean? There are there are different definitions for it. And like, and to your point, you know, it's not being defined anywhere. When I think of clean beauty, it is where, what's the source of the ingredients that are going into that product? That's one, right? Are you, is it produced by harming the planet, right? Are you, are you just you, uh, giving the consumer something to use to make them look better, but you're doing damage while getting it there? Um, did your product go through animal testing, Right. I mean, we at Amaris, we don't, none of our cosmetic products are tested on animals, right? I don't think that's ethical at all. And we strongly believe that for the, for, for the beauty sector, that's one area. So for me, when I say clean beauty, where are the ingredients sourced from? You know, was it tested on animals just to show it's safe, right? Those are things that we, uh, you know, adhere to quite closely. And then, you know, to your point about the list of banned chemicals, right? You can go to our website on our brands and you can see the chemicals that we have explicitly stated are not going to be in our products. And those include the list of the banned chemicals that, that you stated, right? So, you know, again, you know, the, the entire beauty sector is cognizant of these uh, views, right? And, I, and again, to give credit where it's due, they are making a push towards, you know, moving into this more sustainable, into, you know, making the entire sector, you know, listen to consumers and giving the consumers what they want. Well, I have to say for myself, I will never look at yeast the same. (laughs) (laughs) Do you look at yeast a lot, Christina? (laughs) Well, I like to bake. I was going to say, Christina's a baker. But anyway, I had no idea that yeast could could do so much. Sunil, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I have to say, I made a joke about it, but last time I saw you on Zoom, you had... At first, you were sort of shaking your arm throughout the chat, and I was wondering what was going on. And then I see something crawling up your arm, and it was your daughter's leopard gecko. That's right. In the office for the day. Um, Anyway, we thank you very much for joining us. I hope we will speak to you again soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so Rachel, you got a little worked up this week about haute couture, which, you know, doesn't always get people worked up. But something happened in Paris on the first day of Haute Couture. I don't. I, I can't imagine there's anybody on this planet, certainly anybody who's not on social media, that didn't see the Scaparelli show. But it bugged you. Tell us. Oh God! It just. It just. I had to like write it out. You know, I had to like write out my feelings on this one. First of all, because I own a cat, so I think there was just like a visceral reaction. But I mean, for a little context, basically, <laughs> Scaparelli sent 
models down the runway with gigantic endangered animals um, on dresses and coats, um, their heads, disembodied heads of animals. These were not actual taxidermy, but they looked a lot like it. And you have to, if you haven't seen it, just Google it and you'll see what we're talking about. It's giving me rant. It's giving me go home with your stuffed animal heads on your tube tops. <laughs> it's giving oh me God. Dolly would never. <laughs> it's giving me the real Elsa Scaparelli would absolutely never. She had an exquisite sense of proportion. It's giving me Lion King called yeah. and Broadway wants its costumes back. It's giving me call the ASPCA. It's giving me out of touch. It's giving me not in 2023. It's giving none of us have time or bandwidth to process this right now. It's giving me sending the disembodied heads of endangered animals down the runway on rich and famous people proves the combination of a wealth and homeschooling might be robbing these kids of a sense of judgment and independent <laughs> decision making. It's giving me misplaced time, effort, and craftsmanship. It's giving me not all press is good <laughs> press, especially if it's about taxidermy. It's giving me I don't cancel anyone except for Kanye and everyone involved in this show. It's giving, did they make these heads for something else? It's giving me the lion population in Africa has decreased by 90% in the last century and snow leopards have declined 20%. It's giving me, I don't care what limp and lame historical context you have claimed as inspiration from the genius dead artists who are rolling in their graves about this, but fashion and art are all about context. And January 23rd, 2023, was not the time. So Rachel did That's not like damn. the Scaparelli Haute Couture Collection. Let's just make that clear because it wasn't obvious to you. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna some context here. The the designer is Daniel Roseberry. He is he designs a lot of really beautiful clothes, and he is one of a series of designers who've been asked to step into the shoes of Elsa Scaparelli, who it, it was a dead brand before um, Diego Della Valle bought it and started to reincarnate it a few years ago. I'm going to lose track. I think I think Daniel is maybe the fourth, could be the fifth designer that's been brought on um, in the last 10 years or so to, to um, do this. But the problem, the thing that's so hard is that in addition to being an extraordinary couture, haute couturier, Elsa Scaparelli was a weird um, her best friend was Salvador Dali, and they thought yeah. the same. But what you mentioned, Rachel, is so right. She had an she had an exquisite sense of proportion, and she was known for doing animal themes. She did a lobster hat. She did a lobster dress. She once, pretty sure it was a real. She cut the face off of a leopard and put it as a hat. She also did a shoe as a hat. I mean, she was thinking of you know, and this is in the forties. So this is um, she's she's doing things that were strange before other designers were doing things that was strange but she did them really well and they worked because of that proportion and the and this the you know the things that she did whereas i would agree with you that looked they looked like stuffed animals <laughs> stuck on beautiful dresses <laughs> and they were really i mean i did have to when kylie jenner appeared in that dress with the huge lion head on her chest i like was expanding the image and looking closely because i wasn't positive it wasn't a real lion head. So, okay, there's some craftsmanship in there, the but unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> it's Toys R Us craftsmanship. Right. The Not, craftsmanship was incredible. It was. Uh, but... You know, it's funny. I my first reaction on seeing the images was was not immediate outrage, but it was more about from the fashion point of view of th that doesn't look good. Um, and it yeah. doesn't, it's not that interesting. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> and so I'm actually surprised it's gotten as much attention as it has, um, only because I, from a fashion perspective, I almost feel like it doesn't deserve it. Um, because I, I found it, to your point about it felt like a Broadway costume, um, or that it, they felt like it was made for, to, that was a great point. Maybe it was made for something else and they were like, oh shoot, you know, got to stick it on somewhere. And yeah, that's definitely what it felt like. Um, so I was more confused from a fashion point of view because the, the other, I mean, the other elements of the runway, I thought there were some things that were spectacular. Um, but that, that was definitely a miss. Yeah. Enter the fashion business here. So again, Diego Della Valle buys Scaparelli, wants to revive it. He wants to revive it as an accessories brand because that's where the money is in fashion. You cannot make money off of haute couture and those exquisite dresses. I mean, those dresses are exquisite. They're beautifully made. I've seen them up close and inside out. And, you know, each one of them will be purchased maybe by one or two women. That's it right? This is the lens through which we need to understand a lot of these fashion brands. If your point is to sell accessories, then you need maximum exposure. You need millions and millions of people looking at your your images and thinking, Scaparelli, how do you pronounce that? Where can I get that? Who sells it? Success. I know you're pissed about it, but we're talking here about it. It owned the internet yesterday. Absolutely owned the internet in fashion. Who's talking? Who else showed an haute couture yesterday that we know about? Can you name one other brand? Yeah, no. So you think that they, this was all intentional? That they wanted to get sh- this was for shock value, get the name out there. They wanted to drive conversation around it. Totally. Interesting. Totally. Hmm. Mm. I I if I had seen that dress, I don't know if you agree. If I had seen that dress like a month ago. I would have I would never have expected for it to get as much attention as it did. Well, they put it on Kylie Jenner as well as on the runway. That's true. Fair enough. You're right. <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're yeah. right. And how often do they dress a celebrity in the front row with a dress that's actually in the runway? Rare. Yeah, very rare. They'll choose another one from the collection, but they rarely put the most spectacular runway look. On a guest that's mm. in the front row. And they had Doja Cat too with all the Swarovski crystals. Oh my God, Doja Cat. A huge coup for Swarovski. You know, they pulled another good one off there. I, mean, I that- can't believe that's that look is the one that's not being talked about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like, how long did she sit to get those on and then off? Four hours. Oh my God. Or four hours and 58 minutes was what I heard. So it was five hours. Crazy. Okay. That's a wrap on our last episode of this season. We're going on hiatus. We will be back soon, though, with more episodes about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. Please support us by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Hot Buttons Pod, and check us out on YouTube at Postscript Pods. If you like the show, send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to Hot Buttons at Postscript audio.com or leave us a voicemail at our new call in line it's at 508-622-5361 so give us a call Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineer is Sean Marquant. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures.
Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We will catch up with you next season. Yeah, so yeah. Send I got me East a all starter. Of- Do you want me to? I have starter. I can send you some starter. S- Sisterhood of the I'm- traveling yeast. Maybe. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Gross.